This is a lesson on sharing Christ, and it's also the sermon. And uh, I'm very, I, I love to preach. I do a lot of teaching. I uh, probably speak three, four hundred times a year. Uh, some people know me more as a debater. They go to YouTube. They watch my debate clips. Other people know me more for the tours. Uh, but today, I uh, promise to be just a preacher. Yesterday, we tried to get a clear picture of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. In the Old Testament, we saw how the picture of Jesus had been distorted, not only through many centuries of church history, so that today there are actually dozens of different Jesuses being te- being taught, like Guru Jesus, for example, or we talked about Che Jesus. And even in world religions, there are many different takes on Christ. We even talked about how Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Baha'i, and others look at Jesus Christ. So we really covered a lot of different things. Today's lesson is on uh, sharing Christ. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, certainly make clear that this message is too good not to share. And I could give you many examples to substantiate that. Uh, you know, Matthew has the double Great Commission. You know, Matthew 28, going to all nations or to all peoples. But earlier in Matthew 28, it says, come see, go tell. We could do this. The the Great Commission is implicit or explicit in all the Gospels. But today I thought we would just stay in John's Gospel. Now, to appreciate the lesson, let me emphasize something that runs through the whole Bible. And it's embarrassing if you are a church person. In fact, this theme could make you angry because historically God's people often get angry when it's brought up. And that is that outsiders are often better behaved than insiders, that those outside the community of faith often have more insight than those inside, that those outside are nearer the kingdom of God, so to speak, than insiders. And there's so many examples. I mean, I think of the, like the centurion who said, you don't need to come to my house, Jesus. You don't need, just say the word. And, and Jesus says, I've not seen such great faith in Israel, which you could take as a put down, or you could say it's a challenge to rise. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's the book of Jonah. Jonah is mainly known because of the, 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 he got swallowed. But what's the point of Jonah? Jonah is told to share the news to outsiders, and he runs away because he doesn't actually want them to be converted. He runs away because he's afraid that God will forgive them. And Jonah ends with him in complete self-pity, and God expressing that he cares about the outsiders. If you thought it was about a fish, you missed the story uh, completely. Uh, even in the Gospel of John, where we're going to go, there, there are many stories that are, uh, let's say, they're stories of authenticity. They may be with insiders, they may be with outsiders. Jesus, and that's an important word these days, Jesus has very authentic interactions with people like Nathaniel, John 1, Nicodemus, John 3. But today, and, and many others, we're going to look just at, at one. It's actually a woman, and I hope that's okay. It better be okay. And that's the Samaritan woman. So if you open your New Testament to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, I I may refer to many passages, but I I will only be reading from from, from here, okay? So we're in John 4. Jesus has to go through Samaria, which uh, just for the geography is located between Jerusalem and Judea and the north part of Galilee where he lived. Samaria is in the way. Okay, John 4, verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, 
Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he's tired, sat down by the well. It was about noon, but actually it was uh, one o'clock in the afternoon because of daylight savings. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Okay, here's the situation. He's tired. He sits down at a well. That, that well is actually still there. There's a nearby town. His disciples have gone into the town. On the way, they passed a woman. Because the woman was coming to the well, which is outside of the town. So they had actually passed each other. And they go to get uh, earthly food. Just regular food. They're, they're hungry. And Jesus sits down with this woman. Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? Initiating the conversation. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The history of prejudice, misunderstanding, goes all the way back 700 years earlier. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17. And there's no shortage of Jewish writings from the time of Jesus and earlier where the Jews put down the Samaritans. Call them stupid, make fun of them for their accent. They used a slightly different Bible. They had different traditions. They were really not very welcome. Of course, Jesus breaks through barriers. Just as Cristo rompe las cadenas, he breaks chains, barriers, misconceptions. When Jesus interacts with women, and as we saw yesterday, that's more of a theme of Luke's gospel, but, but I'll take it here in John. Jesus never belittles women. And this is important because many people think if you're a Christian, you're you're stuck in the wrong century. You're stuck in a patriarchal, exclusivist, misogynist religion that puts women down. I think you could actually make the opposite argument. Jesus never belittles women. He interacts with them in all purity and respect. Yes, he had a friendship with Mary Magdalene, but no, Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, she was not his lover. If he had wanted to get married, he would have done it, and it wouldn't have been a sin. He, he didn't do anything on the sly. He was upright. He notices women. He doesn't look at them as objects, but as subjects, that is, as people. The group here seems more female than male. I don't know what the balance is. But how do most of us men look at women? Even if you've been a Christian 40 years, it's hard to get it out of your blood. You look at a woman and you kind of size her up. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That was indelicate. Because, that's right, we have the Holy Spirit. So that kind of stuff would be washed right out. 
No, there's big money to be made into turning women into, into objects to look at. That's big money. I think it was pretty bad in the first century. I think it's really bad in the 21st century. Jesus sees women as actual people, neither sex objects nor servants nor uh, in the terms of, of drama theater. They're not just extras on the set. Okay, yeah, we need them to have children because men really wouldn't want to become pregnant, and so we, we need the women. That That is not the situation at all. He sees the women as God sees them because Jesus has God's eyes. He's willing to drink, interestingly, from the vessel of the Samaritan. He asked her to give him a drink. The Jews had all kinds of rules about what's unclean and touching things. And they were, they were really fussy about liquids, all kinds of liquids, bodily liquids and other liquids and uh, dead lizards that fall into buckets of liquid. And he's, he's saying, you can use the, you know, can you take this? They're, they're going to share the same bucket. That already is showing a lot more connection. It's kind of like the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Levite and, and the priest don't defile themselves. The Samaritan is the one who's willing to get blood on himself to help the, the robbery victim. He treats women also as equals in the area of discipleship. Here's a rabbi who normally back then, a rabbi only taught men. Women were not considered to be worthy to be taught. They were considered to be inferior in intelligence. A woman's testimony, according to the ancient Jewish sources, not in the Bible, this is not Bible, this is outside the Bible, a woman's testimony was not permitted in a court of law because of her feeble mind. Jesus not only taught women, and here he's teaching theology when you get into the story, he actually had women support him, Luke 8, 3. Some followed him, and at the end of Luke 10, Women sitting at his feet learning. In that case, it was Maria as Martha's sister. The position of a male sitting at the feet of the rabbi. Jesus breaks all kinds of things. We are stuck in our traditions. Jesus just loves to break them. He answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you a drink, asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Interesting conversation. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So he didn't bring a bucket. He was presumably going to use hers. The well is deep. By the way, it is deep. The first time I was there, I took a small pebble. I know I shouldn't have done this. Because if millions of tourists did this, eventually it would be not deep at all. But I, I threw it in, and it was deep. So you'd need not only a bucket, you'd need something to get the bucket back up with, like rope. Where can you get this living water? Greater than our father Jacob? Maybe she's being a bit provocative. You know, Jacob's one of the patriarchs of the Jews. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons. Our father, Jacob. She's saying, you know, we're the covenant people of God. We go to the right church. You probably think we don't, but we do. That's kind of what she's saying. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Oh, if she just would stick around to John 8, he's greater than Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. <laughs> 
Are you greater than Jacob who gave us the well? That is, he dug it and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What kind of a discussion is that? Living water. Well, I cannot help but think of Jeremiah 2. That's where God says, I've provided living water for the people. But instead, they've created their own containers. And it's not living water, and their containers are cracked. So not only is it not the water, it keeps running out. Or maybe you think of Isaiah 12, about drawing water from the well of salvation. I think there's an allusion here to Zechariah 14 or 13. There's an allusion to the end of Revelation, the living water that that flows out from the temple. It's life-giving. It's transforming. He's definitely not talking about physical water. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You think she's playing with him? I don't think so. I think she's she's engaged in a spiritual conversation. He tells her, Go call your husband and come back. Many of you know the story. She hadn't bothered to get married this time. This was number six. Maybe it's just too frustrating. She didn't see what the point was. That's a lot of times to be married. Five. Now she's got her live-in lover. Do you think she felt loved? We don't know. Jesus says, well, technically you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. So what you've said is quite true. What is Jesus doing here? He's taking advantage of an opportunity to begin a conversation. He turns in a spiritual direction. Could we do that? Oh, I'm not trained in the water. I, uh, uh, tr- I mean, theology. I mean, uh, I-, I wouldn't have known about Isaiah 12. You would next time you read it. You know more than you think. So I thought I'd share a little story. Because it's a conversation I had with a woman recently. I just got this yesterday. It's my latest book. In my work, I, I travel a lot, usually explaining Christian faith and teaching Bible. Last week, I sat next to a fascinating woman on a flight from Mozambique to South Africa. Actually, this was in August. but She was well-educated, fluent in many languages. In fact, we were speaking Swedish together. Then I realized she spoke English just fine, even though she was Chinese. Uh, she was fluent in many languages, and she was an atheist. She, she was from Malaysia originally. That was my first Asian country I ever lived in. 
Uh, she was an atheist. We had much in common, including two countries, and soon she was sharing with me her life philosophy. In short, she reasoned, there's really no reason for anyone to live past age 60. I had the window seat, and there was a big guy in C. She was sitting in B. So she's trapped. I looked at her hands, because they tell a story, you know. And most people don't put heavy makeup on their hands. It's amazing how, um, how, in a way, we deceive. Dye our hair. Well, I don't. I don't care. If I cared, maybe it would be a virtue that I don't. But I, since I don't care, it's no virtue. We do all kinds of things to pretend we're younger than we are. Like, who are you kidding? There are actually some early Christians, second century, who said it's a form of deceit. Christians are supposed to be honest. <laughs> it's a form of lying. I make no comment on that right now, although if you want to listen to my podcast on modesty, which I recorded three months ago, check it out for fun. I just want to read the rest of the story. This is my new book, What's the Truth About Heaven and Hell? Past age 60. Should they be euthanized, I asked innocently. Or was I, do you think that when someone hits 60, they should... She said, oh, no, 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 of course not. But we need to consider the next generation and not be selfish. Okay. I should probably tell you the woman looked to me to be in her late 50s. I got that from looking down at the hands. Time was short, according to her philosophy. I sensed an opening. I sensed an opening. What do you think happens after we die? By the way, I use that question with a lot of people to start conversations. It's not freaky like, uh, excuse me, are you saved? Someone comes out like that, you don't know, is he on drugs? Is he, did he just get out of some institution? Is he, you know, has he been awake for 48 hours straight? And, you know, actually in some cultures you could ask that question and it'd be fine. But mm, we're in Florida, aren't we? Even in most of the subcultures of Florida, that's not going to fly. But it's amazing, you ask people... Do you think there's anything on the other side? They know exactly what you mean, and you get into some cool conversations. What do you think? What's your take? She said, we de decompose. We become part of future generations of life. The worms, you know, we just die. And already I could see an inconsistency. Because she's making statements about what we should do, and about purpose, and yet she's acting like, the physical world is all there is. And she's an atheist. Okay, so we become part of the next generation, literally. But if the scientists are right, you know, in a few billion years, our, our planet's going to be consumed by the sun anyway. So if nothing's going to last forever, what's the purpose of it all? She had no answer. Don't think that I was coming on strong. I was actually looking at her, looking away being quiet. I'm a lot taller than her. I'm 6'4". She was probably 5'1". Trying to be gentle. She had no answer. So I said, then it's like existentialism. I said, you sound existentialist. Life is ultimately absurd. There's no meaning, but you create your own meaning? She didn't know what to say. Not because she didn't understand the question. She understood it perfectly. We had a great talk. and we I was able to point out a number of things in her life, things that she opened up to me about, 
that point to something beyond to purpose and meaning. And my angle was basically, you have to admit, this sense of meaning, that there is something beyond, makes more sense if there is a spiritual world, if there is a God. That doesn't prove there's a God, but it makes more sense in a world where there is a God. She said, okay, I see that. And then she asked me, do you believe in God? So I wasn't being so intense that, you know, are you saved? Come and follow the Savior. She said, I guess you believe in God. I said, yes, I do. I think that makes more sense than the alternative, though I'm very familiar with the different sides of this. And I, I just had uh, my new evidence book came out, and I happened to have one copy left. And I tested it. I didn't want to throw away a perfectly good book. I said, when we land in a couple hours, it's in my hand baggage. You remind me, I'll give you it if, you, if you'll read it. When we landed, she not only reminded me, I want that book. She wanted me to meet her friend who was on the same flight. And I'm waiting to hear back from her how this goes. Oh, was it a bold and noble and a heroic conversation? The 6'4 white guy picking on the 5'1 Chinese woman with hands that were age 58.7, you know. Heroic? Nothing about it. In fact, plenty about me is completely non-heroic. I'd much rather be hiding in a library than out on the street sharing my faith. But it's something about knowing who God is. Once I get into a conversation, if I can just get into a conversation, things really start happening. Well, the Samaritan woman, I don't know how similar she was to, to my friend on the flight from Mozambique. Was the Samaritan woman giving up on life? Yeah, I think life, without God, life isn't really all that great. Just kind of run from one thing to another. It's not really that great. Oh, if, if you watch a lot of TV or stuff online, like you spend an excessive amount of your time in the media, you may not agree with me. But that's because you've been brainwashed. I talked to a woman at the beginning of this year. She said, I've decided only to answer email, but no Facebook. I'm not going to spend extra time on the phone, no TV, no movies, nothing like that. I'm basically going to unplug myself as much as I can. And even after two weeks, she said, I feel so much cleaner and more wholesome. I feel like I see what's important in life. So you may think the world is a very attractive place. The more time you spend in the media, online, I'm not talking about your job, okay? But if you overdo it, overdo it, then you start to buy the lie. Watch out for that lie. More on that in John 8. We'll never get there because we're just in John 4. Sir, the woman said, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, Jacob's well... From Jacob's well, you look up and you see Mount Gerizim. That's significant when you read Deuteronomy, Joshua. Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritan temple was. They built their own temple there. The Jews destroyed it in 129 B.C., so this is you know, like 160 years earlier. But the ruins are still there. And even today, the Samaritans, there may be seven or 800 of them. They have Passover up there every year. So... The Samaritan said, that's the mountain, Mount Gerizim. And what she, again, it's a bit provocative. The Jews said, no, no, no. You have to go up three times a year to the place that God specified. What mountain is that? What do you call it? 
I mean, the city is Jerusalem. But do you know the name of the mountain? The Jews call it Sion. Sion. We call it Zion. So Jews would go to Mount Zion. The Samaritans said, no, no. To worship God, you should go to Mount Gerizim. Which was correct. Well, it's interesting. Let's continue. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, time's coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. See, he's not making an exclusive claim, oh yeah, you have to come to Jerusalem, although technically she did. Look what he says next. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. It's like Psalm 147. That's kind of in your face. You don't even know what you're worshiping. Salvation's from us. But I don't think he was saying it in the condemning, um, condescending way that you might imagine. You can ponder that later. Yet, because this is the important part, a time is coming. A time has now come. And the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. They're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. That's 424. God is spirit as worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. I was not brought up in the churches of Christ. I'd never heard of the churches of Christ. Never heard of them. Until a couple weeks before I was baptized. I even had relatives in the church of Christ. They had never reached out to me. They never told me anything. Amazing. <laughs> Later on I said, well, how come you never talked to me? And it was in my first year I first heard spirit and truth. I worship in spirit and truth. And that was normally portrayed this way. And I'm going to challenge that. It's portrayed spirit and truth. You have to, your, your worship's unacceptable if your doctrine is wrong. You have to worship in the truth of the Bible. Is there some truth to that? Well, of course there is. I mean, if you're praying to yourself or you're worshiping idols, then you're not worshiping in spirit or truth. But but is that what truth means here? Or is it more like John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus was not saying, I am the way, the doctrinal correctness, and the life. It's That's not the truth we're talking about here. In fact, I would argue that spirit and truth, the truth part, really has nothing to do with doctrine directly. Truth has to do with being truthful. No games. Being authentic. Not playing at church. Like Revelation 3 or Malachi 1. It's kind of a waste to even show up if you're just trying to go through motions and get points. Then what would spirit be? I think the clue is in 24 when it tells us about God. God is spirit. Now, we don't think God's physical. We don't mistake God for the the pulpit here. God's not physical. He's spirit. Ah, but if he's spirit, then in a sense, he could never have been at the top of Mount Gerizim or even in Mount Zion in Jerusalem's temple. He couldn't be there. You know, when Solomon dedicated the temple in uh, 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon said, the heavens, the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I've built. Now God's glory, His presence filled the temple and it was stunning. 
even more stunning than when than the, than the Shekhinah, the, the, the glorious presence of God came to the tabernacle in Exodus, even more. But, but we shouldn't think that God was in the temple, but he wasn't in other places. It's just a place where he was manifesting. God is spirit. He's absolutely everywhere. Are you online? I used the church's network yesterday and today. Think of it this way. Praying to God. Well, yeah, you're not going to connect if you're not truthful, so forget that. But the good news is you can connect anywhere. It's one universal hotspot. There's no need to lose the signal. It's strong worldwide. It's not tied to a particular building or institution. We worship God in spirit and truth, which means we don't worship God on Sunday. Though we do. It's everywhere, every day, anytime. With that attitude, it's a lot easier to share Christ. The woman said, uh, I know that Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one, the Christ, I know he's coming. Verse 25. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. What do you think she's thinking when she says that? Well, I know what Jesus says next. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. So in verse 9, she just sees a stranger, a man. In verse 11, she calls him sir. In verse 19, I see you're a prophet. Oh, because you knew about me sleeping with this guy, huh? In verse 26, she now knows he's the Messiah. See how her spirit, her eyes of her heart are opening. She's seeing more and more just through the course of that conversation. I don't think this took hours and hours. Well, I'm going to shorten this a little bit. The disciples return. They come back. They see Jesus talking to a woman. What are you doing talking to a woman? She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. No, no. The very woman they would have passed earlier on. They don't get it. And it's a common theme. And, and you know, Jesus says, I have food to eat. Thanks for reading that earlier on. That was our text this morning. I have food to eat. You know nothing about my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. They say, oh, you got food? Someone got him a sandwich? Go to Subway or something? Jesus is on channel one. This is a common theme in John's gospel. Jesus is on channel one. His disciples are on channel two. They're just looking at the physical stuff. He's talking about spiritual stuff. Nicodemus, same thing. How can a man crawl back inside his mother? Isn't it a bit late, you know, to get born again? Channel two. Jesus is on channel one. The crazy thing is the Samaritan woman is tuned into channel one, but not the disciples. The big-time men, the apostles, who had authority to preach, even do miracles and raise the dead, they don't get it. They kind of get it on and off. And Jesus says, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. And he says, open your eyes and look at the fields that are ripe for harvest. In short, he changes his plans he spends a couple extra days in the Samaritan village because of her testimony. Verse 39, he told me everything I ever did. Let me ask you, was her testimony strictly speaking correct? Did he tell her everything she ever did? 
You think she, he really went through her entire life and told her everything? Of course not. But it's how she felt. And we should not fault her for that. She's sharing from her heart. So the Samaritans come to him, and he stays two more days. And the last verse, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves that we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Not, He's not the Jewish Savior, though he is. He's the Samaritan Savior. He's the Savior for everyone. Most people in our world don't get that. And actually, most insiders don't get that. And often outsiders will pop in and they'll say, oh, you say this, but you knew me and you're not saying anything to me. So that doesn't make sense. You say this is eternally important. This is a matter of heaven and hell. If it were true, I would not be living like you. And so they walk away feeling quite justified. Let's not do that. Let's not make it so easy for people to walk away. What we learn from the woman, well, don't write certain people off. Some would say, well, she's damaged goods. Don't write anyone off. Social distinctions often divide. Christ brings things together. Evangelism does not require advanced training. Start conversations. The great way is to look someone in the eye. And then they'll say, what? So if you don't start it, they will. <laughs> look people in the eye, start talking. Who? What do I say? Who cares? Once you're in a conversation, things start changing. Even in your brain chemistry, things are already starting to change. And what's in your heart? In time, it will come out. Share Christ, a person, not a system. It's about a relationship, about truth, authenticity. It's not about a system, though they, we do need to get them into the Bible. Do some good. You say, Douglas, I don't know what to do. I've not been evangelistic for years. What do I do? I'll give you an idea. Walk down to a place where there are people. Maybe it's a place where people shop. We drove through Windermere. It looked like a really nice upscale shopping area. Fine. Walk around with their people until you figure out what to do. Start conversations. Or you see someone in need. Just be friendly. I did that one day when I lived back when I lived in London, just to see how many people I would start. My rule was I will not do this me mechanically. Like here's an invitation. Come. No, I'm just going to start a conversation. I talked to 48 people in one day, just starting a conversation. Just do something. But I don't know. Uh, what would I invite them to? What would I say? Pray for wisdom. I'm not trying to minimize the work of the church. But the church is simply the aggregate of the ministries of all the members in the church. And we can all do something. Don't write people off. A broken, damaged person can still be transformed. And sometimes we learn here the outsider is the hero of the story. When you truly believe the good news, you share it. Teach Christ. Ephesians 4 says they taught people Christ. The early Christians taught them Christ. It wasn't particularly high-tech. Any study series or method has to center on Jesus. There's no right way or wrong way to do it. The only wrong way is to be quiet and not talk. And for that, we will be accountable just like the lepers in 2 Kings 6. If we know and we say nothing, we are accountable, and we should be accountable. Material. We're spoiled for choice. Carrie has produced some great material called Life-Changing Principles. You say, oh, I need some guidance. I need some structure. Yes, you do. You need a template. You need somewhere to begin, and then you can adapt it. Great. I point you to that. 
life-changing principles. A couple of my books out there, The Spirit and also Shining Like Stars, are heavily about evangelism if you want to go deeper. Start conversations about interesting subjects like life after death or vampires. Now, when I teach the middle school and high school students, you'll know. We're going to talk more about this. There are all kinds of things that are, are, are interesting in our society right now. You say, vampires, that's weird. Listen to my vampires podcast and tell me if you think it's weird. Millions, tens of millions of people are fascinated with vampires. The vampire is the dark Christ. I explore 13 contrasts between Jesus and the vampire. One's a creature of the night, one's a creature of the day. One goes into the tomb, one comes out. One gives his blood for us, the other takes his blood. One gives you life, one gives you nothing but death, and so on and so on. Fascinating stuff. And it's not very threatening. It's not like, are you saved? Like, hey, have you you read any of the Twilight books? Boom. I mean, even if someone hasn't, they know about it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you are out of it. Yeah, but that's worldly. You know, we should stay away from the occult. That's just an excuse for laziness. We need to know what people are thinking so we can meet them where they are. Paul did that. Jesus did that. We need to model Christ. Live the right way. Credibility, unfortunately, comes from how we live. <laughs> if we're not credible, you think about it. You're, uh, you're telling people that, yes, God's Spirit will transform you, but you're just out of control. I know we're all out of control sometimes. Let's say you weigh a 1,000 pounds, you can't even get out of your own house, and you want to teach people that the Spirit will make you self-disciplined. You see, the it kind of, people say, huh, what? Like you? What? what do you mean? Oh, did I just offend? I hurt the feelings of someone who was a 1,000 pounds. Okay, there are not many of them. We need to love everybody. But we've got to stop being so touchy about things like that. If we're not credible, if we are credible, we enhance the gospel. If our lives contradict the message we're giving, you can't say, oh, but if they're open, God will move. He might move, but often, too often people are turned off. Let us not let conviction that we may be getting today, even in this lesson, don't let that conviction subside. Don't let it recede. Read John 4 again. Get some good study materials, some life-changing principles. Start some conversations. Do it. Don't just let it recede in the rearview mirror. So easy to do that. Capture the moment. Dream about the future. Learn from the past. Learn from our hero. Our hero was not an insider. Our hero today was an outsider, a woman, the Samaritan woman.